Money FM 89.3, the best of prime time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3. Thanks for joining us on Primetime. I'm Bharati Jagdesh. Now to look more closely at the global headlines that you should be paying attention to this week. Jonathan Fruin, senior journalist with BBC World Service Partner Hub, joins us. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Bharati. How's it going? Going well. And I know that you have an eye on several major developments during this week, including the 20th Chinese Communist Party Congress, which gets underway in Beijing this weekend. What's likely to emerge from this, Jonathan? Well, the Chinese Communist Communist Party Congress these days takes place every five years. At the last one in 2017, Xi Jinping broke with tradition by not revealing who his likely successor might be. Mm. At the next National People's Congress the following March, the constitution was amended to lift the two-term limit on the Chinese president. So this weekend's gathering is likely to be a rubber stamping of Xi Jinping as party general secretary and therefore national leader for the next five years. In theory, there's nothing to stop him from serving as president for life. And in the last few months, there have been some high-profile prosecutions of senior Chinese officials on corruption charges, which some analysts have attributed to President she consolidating power. Now, it looks as though the man who's been steering China's economy of late, Premier Li Keqiang, is set to step down at next March's parliamentary meeting. And if that happens, the next round of senior party figures to be unveiled at the Congress would likely indicate who would be in the running to replace him. I checked in with our China media analyst, Kerry Allen, who says that in the build-up to the Communist Party Congress, there have been quite a lot of media campaigns on how this has been an incredible decade for China. So mm. the stage appears to be being set to demonstrate that Xi Jinping has improved the lives of Chinese citizens. If you looked at it objectively, Jonathan, what's your assessment? Has it been a wonderful decade? Well, um, following on from that, there are some significant achievements in Xi's first 10 years in power. According to the World Bank, 82 million Chinese lived under conditions of extreme poverty in the year after Xi became leader. By 2019, that figure had fallen to 6 million. China claims to have eradicated it completely since. Chinese government statistics indicate that the Average disposable income for urban households rose by two-thirds between 2013 and 2020, with a more than 80% rise among rural households. But there are significant economic challenges ahead. Xi Jinping, as we know, has been pursuing a very strict zero-COVID strategy since the start of the pandemic. It means whole areas get locked down on a frequent basis. There are signs on social media of real fatigue among ordinary Chinese citizens, although uh, much of that gets quickly blocked by the authorities. The COVID policy has put a lid on Chinese economic growth, expected to be just 2.8% this year, down from just over eight last. And uh, the country faces a really challenging property sector. There's significant debt-filled property boom in many parts of the country, and China's property sector accounts for around a third of economic output. But property prices are falling fast. Developers have been abandoning projects unfinished, and in some parts of the country, disgruntled homeowners who've taken out loans to buy unfinished properties have stopped paying their mortgages. And then, of course, more significantly, perhaps, there's been a wider crackdown on dissent in the country, particularly in Hong Kong. Surveillance cameras are commonplace across China, and there's the situation in Xinjiang, where there are accusations from the US and others that China is committing crimes against humanity and potentially even a genocide against Uyghur Muslims. And, uh, of course, there's also the potential for some sort of conflict over Taiwan. Xi Jinping has made very clear he considers the self-governing island to be part of China and that reunification, quote, must be fulfilled. So in the coming years, there is the scope for a major dispute with the West if China were to, say, invade Taiwan, and that would obviously leave the rest of the world with a real dilemma about how to proceed. 
A lot of thorny issues you just mentioned, yep, Jonathan, a lot of them. To what extent can we expect any of these thorny issues to be addressed during the Congress? Well, I mean, I think it's going to be mostly a celebration of uh, policies that have been implemented and policies that are to be implemented. Um, so I don't think you'll be hearing much about some of the issues that I was talking about there, although, you know, they will be celebrating the economic achievements, I'm sure. Now, the COVID-0 policy has been in the spotlight internationally as well. To what extent can we expect President Xi and his party comrades to actually talk about this more and to explain it further, to maybe even announce an end to it so that the Chinese economy can recover and the global economy can too alongside it? Well, I don't think there's any indication that, that uh, Xi Jinping is about to perform a U-turn on, on zero COVID. It's potentially the case that uh, that they could start to relax, I suppose. But people visiting events um, have to scan in with their with their QR codes wherever they go. And, uh, you know, you hear about people being tracked and traced wherever they go. And if they even brush past someone who's had COVID, they can get uh, locked down personally and blocks get locked down and so on. So I, I don't think there's likely to be a... Mm-hmm major change in that policy. Well, I'm sure a lot of uh, analysts, both political and economic analysts, will be watching the Congress. But through the week, there are other annual meetings to be watching. The annual meeting of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund in Washington. What can we expect to come out of these? Well, those international financial institutions, they gather in the spring and the autumn each year. Finance ministers, central bankers, business people get together to discuss the state of the global economy. This is the first time the meeting's been in person since the start of the pandemic. One of the centerpieces is the unveiling of a new global economic outlook. Uh, perhaps comes as no surprise given the wider economic context that the IMF's already signaled it will be downgrading its forecast for global growth next year at the meeting this week. It reckons countries accounting for around a third of the global economy will see two quarters of contraction, commonly seen as the definition of a recession this year or next. High on the agenda is going to be how the world responds to the shocks of the COVID pandemic, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and a worsening climate crisis around the world. It was worth remembering that for the last few years, we've had a period of relative calm with low inflation and low interest rates, but with inflation now widespread and interest rates rising sharply in many parts of the world, the significant debts that countries and companies have built up are at risk of causing real problems. And we saw this in microcosm a couple of weeks ago when the new British government unveiled plans for massive tax cuts that were unfunded. Global debt markets responded by pushing up the cost of UK government borrowing to such a level that, as you were discussing just before I came on, the Bank of England was forced to intervene to say it would buy UK government bonds, which was done to protect a number of UK pension funds that had come under significant pressure because of the rapidly rising cost of borrowing and some novel financial engineering that the pension funds had engaged with. So the British government performed a partial U-turn on its tax plans, although mortgage borrowers now face much higher interest rates as a consequence of it all. And that's likely to impact economic growth in the UK in the coming years. And that's a picture that, whilst that was specific here, we might see in other countries as well. Um, In the Financial Times today, there's an interview with US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen ahead of these annual meetings of the World Bank and IMF, and she discusses coming up with collective action around trying to put a price cap on Russian oil and also urging European countries to get aid money that they've pledged to Ukraine into the country more swiftly. So overall, policymakers this week will be trying to work out the best way for their countries to respond to and tackle the situation that's emerged, in particular since the start of this year when Russia invaded Ukraine and the picture for rising prices around the world dramatically worsened. I mean, it is worth noting one piece of encouraging news on prices, which is that last Friday the UN clocked up its sixth consecutive month of wholesale food price falls after a steep ramping up in the immediate aftermath of the Ukraine invasion. Vegetable oil, meat and dairy have all become cheaper. 
although grains have been rising again somewhat. Can we expect anything concrete to come out of these meetings or will it just be a talk shop, so to speak? There are communiques that come out of these things, but it's tricky to say exactly what uh, what the, the, the sort of overall outcome will be. But it, it, there's a lot of talking and you will get communiques, but... Um, but it's hard to say. Mm. Here's something that a lot of Singaporeans are looking forward to. On Tuesday, Japan's government is relaxing its entry rules for tourists. So, as you can imagine, in Singapore, inquiries about travelling to Japan have increased and travel agencies are inundated to a great extent. It's actually one of the top three destinations among Singaporeans. So tell us what you know about this. I mean, what exactly is happening within Japan that people should take note of here. Yeah, well, Japan's been something of an outlier in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic. Its borders were effectively closed to international tourists until June of this year when the country began to allow visitors again, though only as part of an organised tour group and with strict quotas in place. Self-guided tours were permitted last month and from Tuesday, i.e. tomorrow, restrictions on tourists are to be lifted further. The Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has said that the new rules mean that Japan will be on a par with the United States for visitors. Travellers from a range of countries can visit visa-free with no quotas on arrivals. Um, as I'm sure you track closely, the Japanese yen has weakened substantially against the US dollar over recent months, so it's likely to be an attractive, fairly cheap destination for many tourists. It did see a record 32 million visitors back in 2019, just prior to the pandemic, but it's uh, not likely to hit those sort of figures anytime soon because a significant proportion of the tourists were coming from China with strict quarantine still in place for people to return to the Chinese mainland. Analysts reckon it's not likely that those visitors are returning in the near future. Um, Of course, in the wider region, Hong Kong's already recently taken steps to end its hotel quarantine period, but there are signs that that territory is worried about how it will attract visitors again. Just last week, it announced that it would be giving away 500,000 free flights at a cost of around $250 million as it tries to boost its COVID-hit tourism industry. Mm. But it looks as if China has to open up and allow international travel before any of these other countries can recover as well to pre-COVID levels. Well, it would would seem that way, wouldn't it? You know, the Chinese tourists were bringing a lot of money into Japan and uh, buying electronics, cosmetics, all sorts of things, and uh, and, and they're not going to get much of that uh, when it's so difficult to return to the Chinese mainland. Here's the thing, Jonathan. There are also concerns over a twin-demic of flu and COVID. Tell us more about where these concerns are and what's being done to address this. Well, you know, the authorities here in the UK are pretty concerned as we head into autumn and winter that after a couple of years with very little in the way of flu in circulation because people were largely kept apart, with the increased contact since society broadly opened up, we could see a resurgence of both flu and a seasonal increase in coronavirus, the point being that cold weather is favourable to the spread of COVID-19. And as you say, that such a prospect is dubbed the twindemic. But the hope is that with a widespread flu vaccination campaign and a COVID booster programme, that can be avoided. Although here in the UK, COVID cases have been rising recently. And it's difficult to say with confidence that cases, cases will stay low because so much depends on whether some new variant or strain of COVID-19 emerges that could potentially evade the vaccines that we've got or immunity for those who've already been infected. But health experts believe that with the additional protection of reformulated, particularly vaccine boosters that have been designed to counter the more recently emergent variants, there's a good chance that another major wave of the disease can be avoided. Though that in turn also depends on there being a fairly strong uptake of the boosters, which is by no means guaranteed. Thanks very much for that, Jonathan. Jonathan Fruin, Senior Journalist with BBC World Service Partner Hub. Thanks for joining us on Primetime today, John.
To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.